Welcome to the Courageous Entrepreneur Show. This is the show that shares information and inspiration to help you break free from self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and disempowering patterns, and break through to create the thriving, successful business you dream of and deserve. I'm your host, Winnie Anderson. The show features interviews with entrepreneurs who've overcome amazing challenges to create success on their terms, and experts who share insight and practical information that can help you get past your blocks, move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. The show is available in both video and audio formats in a variety of platforms, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, the Google Play Store, on YouTube, and of course on my website at winnieanderson.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll share the show with others in your community, and I hope you'll decide to join my courageous community. You can do that by becoming a fan of the show on my site at winnieanderson.com fans. When you do, you'll get episodes delivered right to your inbox, along with information, insight, tips, and resources to help you consistently move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. You'll discover how to position and pre-sell yourself as the unique solution provider you are, so you can profit from your expertise and build a business in alignment with your faith, beliefs, and values. You know, from the moment we're born, we start learning. We discover that crying brings relief of our suffering and gets our needs met. We absorb the sights, sounds, and lessons all around us. As we grow, we form our self-identity and begin to dream of a future full of work we love that uses our great gifts and strengths and we continue to absorb messages that others communicate to us intentionally and unintentionally. When we join the working world, we become part of organizations that have varying degrees of emotional health, and it's not always good. While we develop the foundation of our professional future and hone our skills and craft, we get exposed to the beliefs, values, and behavior patterns of others. That's what we in HR would call an organization's culture. Without realizing it, our beliefs and behaviors are influenced by our organizational life, and while the patterns we developed contributed to our success inside the organizations we worked for, and on our own, those same patterns of thinking and acting can become disempowering, holding us back from achieving the very success we dream of and deserve. And that's what today's episode is all about. This is an unusual episode for me and for the show. This is an interview-based program, as I mentioned in the introduction, but the past several weeks have been tough for me and for my guests. I've had a rash of guests who've needed to reschedule for health and personal reasons. This has been a tough flu season, and on top of that, I had a terrible injury to my leg that made it nearly impossible for me to sit up for any extended period of time. So I found myself without a completed show for this week, but I hated the thought of not making good on my commitment of delivering useful information, and I know the importance of consistency, so I decided to come out of my comfort zone a bit and do a solo episode for you. The information I'm going to share hit me like a ton of bricks, frankly, a few years ago when I had what I can only classify as a nervous breakdown. I was still in active recovery from my brain injury. And a TBI, traumatic brain injury, has a long recovery period. And I had reached a point of tremendous frustration as I was trying to build my solo consulting practice. I realized that the strategies that had helped me survive an abusive childhood were in fact now actively holding me back. Things like perfectionism, conflict avoidance, just to name a couple. 
And the more I thought about those patterns that helped me survive, the more I realized that they were the same patterns that actually contributed to my success as a corporate professional. I've been fascinated by behavior and personality my whole life, and I've studied it at school, at work, and in life. I have almost as many degrees as a thermometer. I have an associate's degree in personnel administration, a bachelor's in education with a teaching credential in general business, a master's degree in human resources, along with 15 years that I had spent certified as a senior professional in HR. I've also done postgraduate level work in counseling and psychology, and I have a bunch of additional certifications, uh, including... Uh, and enough credits for a student, a student personnel certification, which means I could be a guidance counselor in, uh, in a public high school. I've got a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks with a major in self-sabotage. One other element that makes me a, a bit quirkily unique is that brain injury. In addition to having to relearn how to learn, even to the point of having to learn how to tie my own shoes, I experienced an awfully big personality shift. Prior to the accident, I had been what I would consider a solid ambivert, meaning uh, you know, I had a little bit of introversion in my, my personality, but I also had some extroversion. But I leaned more towards the extrovert side of the spectrum. After the accident, though, I became a true introvert. I had to rediscover who I actually was, and I had to develop new ways of dealing with the world so I could be true to this new version of myself, and I could continue to use my biggest gifts and build the independent business that I really dreamed of. So listen in as I share three ways organizational life conditions us for struggle out on our own, why corporate escapees struggle to recreate the success we enjoyed as employees, the reasons we move forward toward change we want, but we can actually backslide and even give up or self-sabotage. And the elements that I call the six pillars of courageous success. Now, as always, listen all the way to the end where I'll share your cocktail exercise and your action step for this episode. All right, Winnie Anderson here, and I'm going to share with you three ways that organizational life conditions you and us, actually, for struggle as solo professionals, and I'm going to share some tips and strategies on how you can break free. All right, so the big question I'm going to be answering is why smart, talented people like you struggle to come out of hiding to achieve their goals and really create the success that they dream of and deserve? You had a level of success in organizational life, and you might be frustrated with why being out on your own has not produced the level of success that you, you know, you had fantasized about when you went out on your own. So what I'm going to share with you is how we've been conditioned our entire lives to actually play small and even to sabotage our own success. I'm going to talk about the biggest issues that we have to address to create the breakthrough that we dream of. I'll talk about why we actually move towards the changes we want, but then we can backslide and give up. And I'll share with you the six pillars of courageous success. So we're going to just dive right in here. So the first reason that we struggle when we're out on our own is the overwhelming number of options and choices that we have you know, where do we put our attention? How do we build our business? 
Why do we focus on the things that we do? What direction should we go in? What platform should we use to put our website on? All of these little details and big ones that can seem so important to the overall objective of building our business. And we can quickly become confused, frustrated, and overwhelmed by all of these options. We also develop fears throughout our life, and there are fears that, yes, start out as children, but we're going to be talking about how we develop additional fears even in adulthood and how they can really contribute to holding us back. We also tell ourselves stories throughout our lives. The entire day is full of this monologue that runs in our, our head, and often It is full of these tales that we've developed over time that have built up in our minds and things that we believe are true that may not necessarily be true or, as they often are, things that might have been true for us in the past, but we still believe and still hold on to over time. And what this really gets down to is the fact that we've been conditioned over time. And we, we start out, I'm going to talk about all the ways that we're conditioned. We start out with conditioning in our family. Conditioning is a theory that basically says a behavior or reaction is developed as a result of a stimulus. This could be an object, an event, could be a person. Classical conditioning is what happened to Pavlov's dog. And I'm sure you remember in Psych 101, Pavlov discovered that his dogs salivated not only when the treat he was training them with was presented to them, but they actually had a reaction, of course, to the bell, right? We're used to to hearing about Pavlov's dog and the bell, but they would often respond, they did respond, to the person who showed up with the treat. So the lab assistant would come in, the dogs would start salivating just because they saw the person who they connected with the treat. My first husband used to work with a, a guy at, at work, and this, this person, his name was Dennis. Dennis, in his spare time, he was a dog breeder. And he had you know, some dogs he kept as his own, and he would feed the dogs like most of us do, feed our pets at the same time every night, right, or, or thereabouts. Well, he would have his TV on, and he ended up, he realized, just like Pavlov, he realized that his dogs would start to react whenever they heard Pat Sajak say, oh, Vanna. All Dennis had to say to his dogs was, oh, Vanna. And they would start wagging their tail and salivating and going crazy because they were ready to be fed. So classical conditioning really is real. We've experienced the same thing in our own lives at work. So flashback, and if your stress level went up before a meeting with your boss, that's an example of classical conditioning. You didn't need to be in the actual meeting with her to feel stress and anxiety. Just the thought of it, the anticipation brought on a similar reaction. I know this used to happen to me all the time. I actually shared an office underneath some metal stairs. We used to joke about it all the time, like we were the the, uh, trolls underneath stairs. And we got so good at knowing who was coming down the stairs, we could tell our boss's footsteps. And yes, just the sound of her footsteps would send us into tension. So 
just, you know, before I go any farther, I just want to say I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I am merely a student of behavior. Uh, Behavior has been a fascination for me for as long as I can remember. And, you know, my, my background and training is in education and human resources, as well as psychology and counseling. But I am not in any way a, a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist. So anyway, back to conditioning. So you might even start dreading work because of your boss. You probably remember this. Maybe you had coworkers who caused you to dread going to work. All that f- falls under the heading of conditioning. Now, reinforcement also plays a really big role in conditioning, and there are two kinds of conditioning. There's classical conditioning, which I just described, and then there's something called operant conditioning. So I don't want to get into a whole lot of detail here, but because reinforcement plays a role in operant conditioning, I know you're familiar with this too, this is where your behavior is incentivized, right? That is the nature of work. I will pay you X amount of dollars for you to come to this building and produce a specific outcome, specific work. But of course, we know it was like you were paid to just show up and sit in a chair. Didn't matter how fast you got your work done. You had to sit there the whole day anyway, which I always thought was ridiculous. But anyway, so this is where your behavior is incentivized. You get a bonus for achieving certain goals, maybe. That's positive reinforcement. But then there's also negative reinforcement, like when you get rewarded to not behave in a certain way. So if if your employer wanted to provide incentives for you to stop smoking, for example, that's a great one. And and so many of us can relate to that, right? Our employer tries to uh, provide incentives to get us to change our behavior, which then impacts our benefit costs, right? So that's called negative reinforcement because you're being rewarded to not do something. So this can also happen inadvertently, though, like when, you know, our CEO used to dream up these big ideas and people would get all fired up about it. But you knew, right, that if you just waited it out long enough, he'd come up with some other big idea and off you would go in that direction, too. So that's an example of corporate life, how, you know, you you actually get rewarded for not taking action. So. Anyway, then there's there's the opposite, right? Rewards, positive and negative. There's also positive punishment. I know this is going to sound a little screwy, but that's what happens when something you don't want happens when you take a specific action and it discourages that type of behavior. So I think an example that a lot of us can relate to is when you speak up in a meeting and you got put down or you had some other kind of negative reaction. And, you know, if you're a female, uh, often we have the negative reaction of we say something and people just talk over us or they act like we didn't say anything or they just look at us like, uh-huh, thanks for sharing that. And then five minutes later, some guy says it. And all of a sudden, it's like, stop the presses and it's some big revelation. So that's an example that I think a lot of us can react to. And it discourages you from taking that action again. And you actually learn to just say, yeah, uh-huh, okay, to whatever the boss says. So those are just, that's just some a basic idea of what conditioning is. So let me share with you the different ways that we are conditioned. It happens 
you know, right from the get-go, from as soon as we're born, and it starts in our family of origin. Our family of origin treats us in a certain way, raises us in a certain way, and that begins the conditioning. So, you know, you probably thought your family was nuts until you met your friends' families and thought they were crazy. That's because you're conditioned to believe that things are relatively normal, in, in, uh, and, and your version of crazy is, is normal for you. So the media also continues our conditioning, and this is kind of a layering effect, if you will. So as you start to watch things on TV, you start watching TV shows, you start seeing movies, you start reading and you're reading newspapers, you're absorbing all of that. And, you know, th this is a point, I'm not going to really get into this, but this is a point that is, you know, it's disputed. He who holds the statistics holds the, the outcome, right? This is, is where the, there's a dispute. If you're exposed to violence, do you become sensitized to it? And does violence become normal? And so then do kids become more violent when they see violent actions? I'm not going to get into that, but I think you just know that the media influences you, right? My, my thinking around this is, I tend to use business, you know, because we're talking about business here. So I use examples like Dallas, that old TV show, Dallas from the 80s. You know, why does every t TV show show business people as hopeless skanks, right? They're all unscrupulous. They're greedy. You know, that's not true. It's entertainment. But I think that's a great example of how media plants these thoughts in our heads. And then we just, over time, we just think they're true. Another good example, uh, I think, is the movie Glen Gary, Glen Ross. It's one of my faves. Uh, great cast, legends of Hollywood. Alec Baldwin at his the height of his physical beauty. Um, Jack Lemmon, the legendary actor Jack Lemmon, just uh, Alan Arkin, another legendary actor. So r really great. Uh, this is a male-dominated movie, and it's an example of they're, they're all salesmen. They're real estate salesmen, and they're, they're competing for these, these leads and this, this, these prizes. And it just reinforces the belief that we have that salespeople are just out to screw you and get their commission and their bonus. So again, that's an example of how media really can uh, taint our thinking patterns. So we go to school, of course, and now more conditioning. And really what happens is, and we can't help but, but do this because we're just, you know, we're just people and we, we share our ideas. There, when when you're sharing information as an educator, you know every educator, and and this is true for me too. We all have a point of view, and we're sharing it, right? So this also ends up speaking to to sales at some point and marketing. So that you have a set of beliefs. That's really where this is going. You have a set of beliefs that you're going to be sharing, a point of view that you're going to be sharing with an audience. And the reason why you want to share it so loudly is because then you're not really selling. You're, you're attracting people who buy into and who agree with your point of view. But anyway, school is another place where they indoctrinate you. My husband and I were watching a, a show the other night that was talking about um, uh, ancient aliens, right? That that show on the History Channel, and I shared with him, you know, the the fact that there are these elongated heads. They have have skulls they found with elongated heads. So I share with my husband that when I was a kid, I remember 
that we were taught about Mayans in particular, and we were taught that for some reason they wrapped bricks around their babies' heads to make their heads grow that way. Now, is that true? I don't know that we really know that for a fact, and it does it kind of make you scratch your head? Like, why would you think, even think up the idea to wrap your baby's head in bricks to make their head big? Why would you do that? But anyway, that's an example of school, you know, indoctrinating you and sharing a, a set of beliefs and conditioning you to believe things. And we know, you know, you can think back to your school experiences. You have teachers who triggered fears in you. You have had subjects that you dreaded because you were told that you maybe you weren't creative or you didn't learn well or you had a problem, right? That's all part of conditioning. So then we're going to jump over to the other, the left side of this slide as you're looking at it. Emotional wounds will condition us as well. And there are uh, six emotional wounds. I won't go into them in great detail, but there are about six emotional wounds that we can all experience through the course of our lives. I've experienced all of them. And they then condition us as well. And again, conditioning is, just to remind you, it is a, a theory that says a behavior or reaction is developed as a result of a situation, a stimulus, an event. And so any of these events, we react to them and, you know, hence we, we uh, develop this whole story that we tell ourselves, which I'll get into in just a few minutes. So as we, as we uh, grow, we're in groups, we uh, interact in society, we belong to Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, the Girls Club, Boys Club, variety of groups, maybe in your faith or just, you know, in your community in general. And then also, of course, is work. And that's where we're going to focus the bulk of our attention. And from the get-go, your earliest experience in employment, you begin to be conditioned, right? You start to learn that you show up on time and that you are rewarded for starting on time and you are punished for being late and that you are rewarded for following the rules and you are punished for not following the rules. Then you add in here that all of the people who come to work have their own emotional baggage and, boy, you have a hot mess. So um, it, there's a great book by uh, somebody who I really admire, one of the top leaders in the world when it comes to leadership, actually. Her name is Sylvia LaFerre. She's been on the show before. And she has a fantastic book. She has a couple of great books. But one in particular is called Don't Bring It to Work. And she talks about how people bring their emotional patterns, uh, their family patterns. They develop these emotional patterns in, in family life through family relationships. They bring them to work. And you're actually, you end up playing out the same kind of behaviors that in your at your work site that you did in your family life. So, and we talk about that, those of us in human resources, and I spent the first third of my career in human resources, um, we used to talk about the danger of creating a paternalistic environment and how actually demotivating that can be. So, fascinating subject for me, and it's something that I've really been studying for the last year, uh, last couple of years, and that's where we're going to go now, is we're going to talk about how work really does condition us. So, okay, so we talked about what condition is, conditioning is. Let's talk about what happens when we get stuck in these patterns, and that's really what happens. The brain develops patterns to make it easy for it to function so that it can free up 
energy to focus on high-level work. So we get stuck in patterns through our conditioning around communication, the way we communicate with others, as well as with our own self-talk. And we also get conditioned and stuck in patterns when it comes to boundaries and time management, planning and decision making. So I just want to share some ways we get conditioned here now. So in our communication patterns, first of all, we get conditioned to not speak up. And you know this is true. This stuff, does it does not take you many times to observe this or experience it for you to say, well, I'm not going to voice my opinion again. Right? It's, I equate this to hot stove syndrome. You're not an idiot. It only took you one time to touch something hot to say, I'm never doing that again. Right? So, again, you're not stupid. It only took you one time to get smacked down in a meeting verbally to say, I am not going to voice my opinion. Obviously, you don't want it. So, this stuff, the more you know, you really think about it, it's really true. So, another way you get conditioned for speaking and around others is that, you know, you realize my opinion is not valued here. I'm considered maybe not a team player, right? That's like the worst thing you could say about somebody or was where all the places that I work. Another problem is that you can't even get your voice physically heard because maybe there's such disrespect going on in the meeting itself that you don't have a way to get a word in edgewise. Then there's a then there there's an issue where you really end up at some point not always voicing the truth, right? And the reason for that is maybe you're afraid of being slapped down, you might be afraid of being laughed at, you might be afraid of being seen as negative or not a team player. I remember it at the hotel company I worked for, we had an employee, she transferred in from an operations department into human resources. And I remember the first meeting that that I was in with her and a bunch of other managers. And she voiced an opinion that was, you know, was grounded in reality. It was from an operations perspective. But the, the VP saw her as not a team player. And her reputation was scarred from that moment. And it took her a long time to rebuild her credibility with him and and rebuild her relationship with him. It was damaged that quickly. So you can also become fearful of alienating the boss or others. You know, there's part of working together is is the management of relationships. And while you want to tell somebody, that was a really stupid idea, or that's not quite the best idea I've heard today, but, you, you know, you wrestle with, how do I say this? And And at some point, you know, often we'll just give up. It's not worth it for me to say the, the truth as I see it. That also feeds into things like conflict avoidance, especially with clients or peers. I don't know about you, but again, I worked in, in the hotel industry and in casino gaming, actually. And what happened was we would become experts at saying no without actually using the word no. Because you're trying not to alienate the customer, but at the same time, you know, maybe there's a a line in the sand that you're not willing to cross, or maybe there's some rules, right? The customer wants something, and you've got regulations that you follow. You can't, or or, you know, internal uh, controls that you're not willing to violate, or you can't violate. But so you're trying not to tell them no, right? You're saying, well, what I can do for you is this, 
Right. So think about that. You've probably been conditioned to be an expert at saying no without actually saying no. Then the, there, the other issue there then is your inability to say no to peers. And that feeds into where we get stuck in patterns with boundaries and time management. So again, you know, when I, when I was working, the worst thing that you could say about somebody was they were not a team player. It just ruined their reputation. So that meant, and, and of course, we had an open door policy, right? So you always were working with your door open and people would just come in. Maybe they would knock, maybe they wouldn't, and they would just interrupt you. They had something, they had a problem or a question or they wanted your help with something and they wanted and expected it immediately. There was no, no thought about, hey, when can I come and revisit you know, and, and uh, talk to you about X. No, it, it's now, right? So you end up with a feeling like your work doesn't matter, like you don't matter, and you end up with these incredibly poor boundaries, and that makes you struggle with time management. Another example of corporate life, meetings. Oh, yeah, yeah, don't get me started. So you would end up, you can't say no to a meeting, right, unless you truly had a conflict. And then yeah, you had to schedule these meetings back to back. You barely had time to to literally run from one end of the building to the other. I know, again, when working in the hotel, it, it was a big physical footprint. And there were times when I really did have to have to run to make my next meeting. So you end up with the, these these ridiculous, you know, ridiculously poor boundaries when it comes to time management. This also impacts your planning and decision making. And the challenge here, one big problem is that you start to not really know what your own goals are. And because you are supporting everybody else's goals, you're supporting the organization's goals, you can really lose sight of what is important to you and what means the most to you and then what values you use to make those decisions with. So uh, one other thing, I want to go back and and talk about self-talk in the area of communication. You know, you might have been bullied or even gaslighted and seen that you really are undeserving um, of promotions, of rewards, of bonuses, and you hear and replay the tapes of your hypercritical boss or your undermining peers along with the voices of any other people who were in your life who criticized you and planted and fertilized seeds of doubt. And that can really, you know, really then plant stories that you continue to replay, right? So a couple of other things about boundary problems is that this conditions you to drop everything and respond to the fire of the moment. And again, that your work is just not important. So how does this then impact you out on your own? Well, you get caught up in telling yourself these stories. You can develop these fears that are like roadblocks, that you're just not going to go down a specific path because you secretly have this fear of some kind of injury, uh, an emotional uh, injury that you're afraid to get um, and and pull the scab off of is, is how I like to think about it. So. And, and, you know, you're not, you can't really understand sometimes why you can't bring yourself to go down a specific path. Think of it as, you know, maybe you're avoiding 
taking certain actions. It might be that you're avoiding certain tactics or strategies to market yourself, but this is one big reason why you might be struggling to achieve the success that you dreamed of. Another reason why, you know, we can move forward, right, and take action, but we may actually end up stopping ourselves or self-sabotaging ourselves before we can achieve the success that we want. That seems crazy, but we really do it. We hold ourselves back, and this can be things like, you know, you're chronically late. You chronically don't follow up. You seem to never be able to remember to check your calendar or, or do those, those things, right? So you might want to ask yourself, am I actually self-sabotaging myself and holding myself back? People who wrestle with a fear of success and a fear of failure can really get tied up in self-sabotage. And then, of course, there's the old, we beat ourselves up on a regular basis. And, you know, we might have dealt with a hypercritical, abusive boss, and we've now taken up that mantle. And while we thought that person was a hopeless jerk, which they were, we're now the jerky boss. We're the worst boss that, you know, the one that we didn't want. We're mean to ourselves, we treat ourselves badly, and we grab any mistake, and I put that in air quotes, that we make, and amplify it and continue to make ourselves feel bad. Okay, so all of that ends up creating a whole host of fears, and I equate fear to this bridge, and that's actually how I I encourage people to think about it, that fear is a bridge that we must be able to cross to achieve our goals and to reach what we want, which is on the other side. So if you can pick one spot on this bridge that, that and, and if you're watching this uh, on video, you can see this bridge in front of you. Just imagine yourself, and if, you, if you're not, you're listening to the audio version, I want you to just picture a, a bridge in your mind and imagine you're standing on one end and everything you want is on the other side. But your worst fear whether it's a pot, pothole, an obstacle, a physical uh, roadblock in front of you, it's keeping you from achieving what you really want, and you've got to figure out a way around it. So let's talk about this. There are lots of fears that we all share, and what makes us unique is our cocktail of fears and what level of fear that we have, and then the shades of fear. So there's a big long list. I'm not going to read them to you, but there are about 22 fears that we all tend to share. There are, you can Google them. There are um, studies out there that have have tried to narrow them down, and and the words vary from person to person. who who is talking about them and but I've got a, a big long list here and what happens is these fears we then do need to develop some way to deal with them to to be able to navigate through our day otherwise we become completely paralyzed and we're not able to do anything and what happens is we develop needs in response to the to the to the the Uh, fears that we have. And these needs are in constant tension with what we actually want. And the need is, I think of it as a salve to soothe a wound that we have developed. And I think of fears, I think of them as, as wounds, 
So we have a lot of shared needs. There are probably about 12, I'm going to say 24 or so, uh, shared needs that we all have. And we're born with needs, right? We come born with some core needs. First of all, we need nourishment to survive, right? We need physical safety, security to protect us in our infant state. So that means we need to be in a physical place that is safe, we need to have some kind of covering to protect our skin. So it's that very basic element. You know, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, the safety and security is the very first thing that we need. Food is the next one. But really, at its essence, our core most important need is love. Babies die without it. People develop loneliness that as a result of it, and, and it leads to an early death. So love is at our very essence. And while it might make us uncomfortable to think about and even talk about, uh, especially in business, we're often looking for love in all the wrong places, as the song used to say. And we're, we get tied up trying to find love with our clients and with our work. And, of course, we want to do work we love, right? We really do. And we want to work with people that we like. However, we need to have a healthy life, a whole life as I refer to it, where our, our needs are met in other ways, right? You have somebody you love, whether it's your family, your sister, your brothers, your significant other, whoever it is, love is in our essence. And if, if you're not you're not getting that, then you could be trying to meet it in the wrong, in, you know, in, in a not productive way, in a not productive place. But those are our shared needs. And you're unique because you have your own cocktail of needs. And I, I think, and I won't, won't go into this in, in detail right now, I'll cover it in another, perhaps another episode that I do. Um, there are hyper needs that can be developed, that can be so strong and powerful that they really end up being ineffective. Like, for example, the person who has a need for control, who becomes so outrageously rigid that you can't do anything that breaks their order of things, right? Our ultimate fear that's connected with this is that it's not that we're even unloved. It's that we don't deserve love. It's that we don't deserve what we want. Our greatest fear is that we are actually unworthy and undeserving. So you just want to think about that at some point. Do I feel like I deserve what I'm pursuing? Do I know in my heart that I deserve the success that I dream of? Because if you believe at your heart that you don't, and you're afraid you're not, then this is where self-sabotage, resistance, and inaction will, will come in. Another thing, though, that we need to be afraid of is comfort. Because we start to get used to not succeeding, not achieving our goals, and we start settling. And we then become afraid of taking the risks that put ourselves out there and that could get us the very big things that we say we want, 
but we don't seem to go for for some reason, right? There's that old Marianne Williamson quote that talks about how it's, it's really our light, not our darkness that scares us. It's our light. And so that's that, that tug of war between the fear of success and the fear of failure. So we, we are so, can be so afraid of failure that we would rather stay right in mediocrity rather than push ourselves. And this is another way that corporate life conditions us. You know, you're familiar with, uh, with goal setting, of course. You might have even had a, some of your compensation tied to achieving goals. And you would, you know, I don't know about you, but we would end up setting goals that we were sure we were going to hit, right? Because we weren't going to lose our bonus. And we also didn't want to set a goal that would mess up somebody else's goal, right? So the, the worst thing you could do one of the worst things you could do is set a goal and then miss it and cause your boss to, to miss their bonus, right? Oh, man, that was never happening. So comfort is a real, a real threat for achieving your goals. So, okay, let's now, enough of this misery. Let's now talk about how we can actually achieve success. And I think you can do that by embracing and building what I call the six pillars of courageous success. So let's take a look at what they are. First is clarity. This is where everything starts, where the essence of, uh, of things are. I'm going to go through just each, I'm going to name them really quick, and then I'm going to go through each in a little bit more detail. So clarity, beliefs environment, which is a two-parter, strategy, skills, and finally, action. So those are the six pillars of courageous success, and now let's talk about each one in a little bit of detail. So first of all, you got to get clear on what you really want. Remember, we've been conditioned to achieve the goals of others, to, to move the, the mission uh, forward of, of the organization that we work for, and strive to achieve that organization's vision. It wasn't ours. You know, we probably had our happiest work life when our the mission, vision, and values of our company were at least related to those we shared, that we could get behind them, right? But when we leave after decades of working for other people, it can be really hard for us to really understand and get in tune to what it is that we actually want and what we care about. That's why I think you have to detox when you, when you leave. So you want to focus on positives, that the positives of what your goal will actually bring and how it helps others. And I think that's important because I think that it, at our essence, each of us has, has a shared mission to a degree, and that's to serve others. So I think that we tend to, we can get really twisted up and, and, uh, and get tied up in, again, that sense of unworthiness. But when we focus on the positive outcome that our goals and objectives bring and the benefits that come to others, including our own family, you know, the abundance that we create ripples out to our community as well as to our family, that can really help us focus on the good that we're trying to do. And even more important than clarity on the goal is the need to be clear about what it is that you believe about the goal and what you believe about achieving it. That's tied to the story that you tell yourself, and it, it also then leads to action. Action, including talking about something, helps you gain clarity. So this all feeds then into our beliefs, right? And we can develop what I consider disempowering beliefs. 
beliefs that we're not good enough, that people don't care about what we, we have to say, that it's too hard for us to get attention and get our message out, and nobody really cares about it anyway, right? Back to that. So think about where your beliefs come from, and your belief, beliefs come from the conditioning that you've experienced. <clears throat> I did an interview with a guy named Mark Baker, who's a professional speaker. He has a great, great story. He's also a coach. And he talks about how we're actually sponges when we're children and through our, our growth. And the, the beliefs that we have are rarely our own. We absorb them from the world we interact in. And that then it's up to us to challenge those beliefs and say, is this really something I truly believe? Or, you know, is it my parents? Is it my, my uh, family of origin? Is it my schooling? What, where does this come from? I also think you want to consider faith, and I'm not going to go down some religious road, so don't get nervous, but, you know, I have a, a faith background. Uh, I like to think of myself as faith-centered, and for me, that language is, is tied around God and things like that. So, for me, <clears throat> I think that uh, faith plays a big part, and I think you want to ask yourself what role it plays in your beliefs, not just a religious upbringing, but also faith in yourself. Faith, remember, the definition is belief in that which is yet unseen. So do you have faith in yourself? Do you have faith in your abilities? And, and do you have faith that you're going to achieve what you set out to? Another issue of beliefs is your locus of control. And locus of control is a psychological concept that talks about, do you think things happen to you? You know, are you just lucky or unlucky, or do you take action on the world, and are you in charge of your own success? Back in 1999, I was in a car accident, and one of the questions that one of my doctors asked me was, who do you think's in charge of your, of your getting better? And I said, I am. I'm in charge of, of whether or not I get better. Yeah, I'm going to doctors, but you're not in charge of, you know, you make recommendations, you can give me a prescription, but I get myself better. I have to follow that prescription, I have to take that action. So that's what locus of control is. So you want to ask yourself, do you have an external locus of control, meaning you think things happen to you and you have no influence over them, or do you have an internal locus of control and you believe that you have, you know, you direct your life? A lot of times we have the uh, we split things right. We we believe that that uh, there's that dichotomy of that we believe the, there's a plan right to the to the world, but at the same time we also believe that we're in charge of our lives and that we take action. So this is one of those things that you know you can have this back and forth over and it's one of the uh the dichotomies of life and and the uh the, the things that that make us scratch our heads sometimes the mysteries of life you want to also ask why we struggle to act consistently with our stated beliefs now what this is is this when you, when you do act consistently or inconsistently with your beliefs you're either in alignment or out of alignment and this is a value contest Right. So the best example I, I'd like to give is the person who says that health is their number one value and they have donuts every day. Right. If you have donuts every day, I'm sure they're yummy, but come on, that's not exactly the best. It's not known to be a health food. Right. So you want to make sure that what you say and what you do 
they're consistent with each other. And, and if they're not, your brain is going to work overtime to somehow resolve this issue and connect them and make them feel consistent, even though they're not. Next up is our environment, and we have two parts here. We have an external environment and an internal environment, and our external environment also has two parts. One is the physical space. Does your physical space work for you? Does it help you be as productive as you can be? And the people that we associate with and live with, people in our space, they contribute to our environment as well, and they contribute to our courageous success. You might be one of these people who feeds off of the energy of others or at least picks up on the energy of others and it can contribute maybe to your own negativity. Um, we know that if you're around negative people, come on at some point, it wears you down. There's a, uh, there are studies that have been done that show you that negative experiences impact us to the point where it takes five positive ones just to bring parity with that one negative experience. So it's why your physical space is so important to you and why the people that you are around are so important to your courageous success. Next up is your internal environment. Do you have positive self-talk? Do you tell good stories or do you focus on the negative? And we'll get into why we focus on the negative, but that's a fact. There's actually a spot in the brain that lights up stronger when something negative happens. It's probably a built-in defense mechanism. However, it can really weigh you down, and it's why you do need to be sensitive to the fact that it's a five-to-one ratio to bring parity. So you need to work hard to surround yourself with all kinds of, of positive things, positive people, a physical space that is pleasing to you, that you have positive self-talk, that you are watching things that are uplifting and educational and that are not negative and downers. And you also want to look at then what you're allowing in, right? And by that media consumption and things like that. Okay, next up is strategy. Strategy is really the big picture of how you're going to achieve your goals. Often we get twisted up in with strategy versus tactics. So strategy is that big picture of how. And one of the things you really want to ask yourself is what are you willing and not willing to do to achieve your goals? Right? Because I've had people tell me I, I, I'm not going to speak. Okay. Well, nobody said you had to. But know that speaking is one of the big ways to get out there. Right? I've had people tell me I'm not going to use video. All right. Well, but video is one of the powerful ways that we make a connection and share useful information with people. So you can, you know, you can decide to do whatever you want to do, but know that every time you choose to take away something that is powerful, you end up engaging in lower risk, but also lower potential reward opportunities. So one key strategy that I like to see people and I try to use myself is to productize your offerings without commoditizing them. It can help you take the focus off of you, right? We get really self-conscious about what it is that we're talking about. So you want to look at productizing. This, if you've never read the book, Badass Your Brand, you want to pick that up because it really talks about productizing. Branding your offerings, giving them sexy names, uh, pricing them accordingly, and making it easy for people to say yes and to buy those offerings. And when you have things like courses and books and these 
productized offerings, you're not talking about you, you're talking about the thing, the process, and things like that. It makes it easier to have that conversation, and you don't feel you know, quite so icky because you're not really talking about yourself. All right, next we're going to talk about skills, and the reason why this is courageous is because we often focus on the wrong skills. It's easy for us to hide behind technology and think, I have to learn how to build a website, I have to learn how to do this, I have to learn how to do that, but actually we end up wasting time and money on programs, and then of course we don't invest the effort to apply what we were exposed to, but we also focus on learning the wrong skills. You don't need a website. I'm not kidding. You don't. Yeah, you need one eventually at some point, but you don't need one to get started. You can go really far on just a LinkedIn page, right? That's your profile. People are not going to, are, are unlikely to do work with you based on your website. Not until you've built a big website and you've got a lot of information on it and it becomes like a WebMD kind of, of site. You want to make sure that if you are chipping away at that, your website is never truly done, but don't waste time thinking that I have to learn how to build a website because you're going to be spending time and effort on the wrong thing. There are three core hard skills that we need. We need speaking, we need writing, and we need management. And there are lots of sub-elements under management. But by speaking, I'm not talking about that you have to be able to give a, a speech. What you need to be able to do is to present your information in a coherent way. And in a compelling way. Notice I didn't say persuasive. Because when you are talking about a powerful message and you're getting it out loudly enough and big enough and you're getting it to the right audience, they are persuaded. They just automatically go, amen, I'm, I'm with you. So you really want to think about that. And then writing, that is an incredibly critical skill. It is so important in communicating your message and in helping people. If you are going to be doing courses, you've got to have your, your courses written. And they've, you know, they've got to be written in a certain way that helps people learn, helps people take action. Management, you've got money, physical resources, human resources. At some point, you're going to need help, whether you use a virtual assistant or an outside contractor. You also need to manage yourself, and you need to manage your thoughts. So those are really the three most important skills that we need, but we get all tied up trying to learn the wrong thing. And when, what we really need to do is understand our own message, the problem we solve, and who we serve. The deeper we can learn all those things, the more powerful our messages will be. All right, so last, the last step in, uh, for courageous action is to take action. Action actually makes fear manageable, and it can even eliminate it. So we resist something, and then we finally take action on it and go, and that really wasn't that bad. <laughs> so you really do want to make sure that you are taking action when you are feeling most fearful. No resisting. Don't go off into, you know, wasting time. And, and But first, I have to do this. Take action on what is scaring you, and you're going to discover that it's not as hard as you think it is. Remember that small steps and small wins are important. That consistent action, no matter how small, is statistically proven to help you much more than taking what you would call a massive leap, right? Really, there are no massive leaps anyway. There, there are small actions that are taken together, and then they might look like somebody is taking a, a massive leap. But you really want to take a, a consistent steps every single day, the old, how, you know, how to eat an elephant one bite at a time, 
no matter how small that action is, it has really been proven that this is the way to take action. If you're a writer or you're trying to create a course, write a book, what does every great writer do? They write every single day. The late Joan Rivers, the comedian uh, Joan Rivers, she wrote 13 books in her lifetime. She wrote for an hour every day, right? Now, maybe you're saying, oh, I can't write for an hour. Well, then write for 15 minutes. Write for five minutes. But the point is, write every day. And by the end of the week, you're going to have, you know, how much more that you're able to write, that that you've gotten done, right? So consistent action is proven to help more than a massive leap. So you want to face what scares you. You know, when you can't move or take action, it's because you probably have a need in conflict with a want. You might not be clear. You're probably resisting something. So there's a fear in there. You want to acknowledge what you are truly afraid of. What are you ultimately afraid of? It might be a wound that you're trying to soothe and a need that you're trying to fill, a story that you're telling yourself. Shine light on those things. What is holding you back? And challenge your thoughts and question your fears. Are they true? How are they making you feel? Do you want to feel that way? No, you want to feel good, right? So who would you need to be? What would you need to think to be able to change your thoughts and achieve your goals? So let's look at what you don't need and what you do need. You don't need another must-have tool. You don't need another must-do tactic. And you don't need another must-take course. People who make you feel ashamed because you, you haven't moved forward as fast as you think you have, you don't need them either, okay? So no guru who makes you feel ashamed because they think you should be taking massive action. But let's look at what you do need. You often need help getting and staying focused on the right goals and tactics. Great friends can help you do this. A coach can help you do this. You need awareness of your actions. Everything starts with clarity. So awareness of your actions, thoughts, and beliefs, and possible self-sabotaging behavior. you got to be able to recognize it and call it what it is. You want to make consistent progress towards your goals with micro steps. That's something else that you really do need. And you need positive reinforcement as you move forward. So don't learn something new. Apply what you know. And you also need a supportive community of friends who are going to cheer you on. I have clients who talk all the time about the importance of people getting them and understanding them, that they have supportive family and people who love them, but they still don't really get what it is that they're trying to do. And you need the courage and confidence to confront your fears and your strategies that leverage your talents. And that can be scary. All right, let's wrap this up. So to summarize, what you need is uh, that it takes a lot of pieces that make us who we are, that organizational life helped us develop our gifts and become the professionals we are, but it also conditioned us for struggle in many ways. That we tend to, to grasp at bright, shiny objects, but the success we want comes from solid business skills and from what I call the six pillars of courageous success. You want to remember that everything starts with clarity, which is a subset or a subset of that is self-awareness. All right. I hope that 
that resonated with you and that you found that information useful and helpful. If you like this episode, please share it with your connections. Please leave a great review for it on the platform where you consumed it. And be sure to subscribe either on that specific platform like iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play. You can subscribe on, on YouTube for the video versions. But of course, you can also subscribe at my website at winnieanderson.com slash fans. And when you do, you'll receive episodes emailed to you each week along with information, tips, and resources to help you come out of hiding, position, and pre-sell yourself as the trusted advisor you are and profit from your expertise. All right, so let's get into that cocktail exercise, otherwise known as a reflection exercise. No alcohol needs to be involved. Don't drink and drive and don't overindulge. All right, so and and I want to just once again clarify and, and make clear that all those degrees I have, all those certifications, I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychologist. I do not practice either of those professions. I am a business coach and a, a consultant and, and writer and trainer, but I am not a mental health professional. If you decide you need help, and I did, I went through therapy for several months, I strongly encourage you to get it. Get someone who specializes in the issues that you have and in helping people to move past them. Do not feel ashamed. Don't feel bad. It's actually a sign of strength to ask for help. All right, so back to your cocktail exercise. This exercise and the questions that I'm going to suggest you ask yourself are similar to those that I challenged you with in a previous episode. It was an episode I did with martial arts master Jody Harrison Lee, and I'll include the link to that episode in the show notes for this one. So what are you telling yourself that you can't do? You know, what do you say to yourself, I can't do this, I'm no good at that? Uh, I, I'll give you an example, right? I can't speak in public. Your, your mouth doesn't work. You, you can't vocalize the words. What, what is it? You know, you might think I can't speak in front of a large crowd. Well, what's a large crowd, right? So what are you telling yourself that you can't do? Also, what are you projecting onto other people? You know, we do this a lot with potential clients. We say that, oh, they won't pay what I charge, so I have to charge a really low amount. They won't uh, sign up to work with me for that long a period of time. We make these decisions for people when in reality, we don't know what they're going to do. And all we can do is put our message out, share it, and invite people to take action, to move forward, and to work with us. And if they're not ready, okay, that's, that's you know, their decision. Often, people are saying no to themselves and to the growth and transformation that you're offering them. They're not really saying no to you. So, back to what are you telling yourself that you can't do? What beliefs of society or of those in your life do you buy into and allow to dictate and control your life? What fears and doubts do you feed into and fuel with negative self-talk? This is the kind of thing that a journal can be really great for. So ask yourself each of those questions and then maybe just journal one page you know, don't have some teeny tiny three by five notebook, get an eight and a half by 11 or, or a five by nine or whatever is the standard uh, size and start journaling a full page of responses. You want to be really quiet. 
and tune into what starts to come up for you and your action step. It's not what happened to us that holds us back. It's what we're doing and how we're reacting to what happened to us, right? So we were victims. I'll give you that. We were victims when we worked for abusive bosses. We were taught by abusive instructors or we dealt with sabotaging peers. You were absolutely a victim then, and it sucks that all that rotten stuff happened to you. Absolutely. But now it's your choice to move past it and learn from what happened, or we can allow those people to win by staying trapped in the past. So can you identify the ways that you hold yourself back? It might be conditioning that now is at at, you know, at the root of that, but it's up to you to break free from that. And it's simply a matter of replacing disempowering patterns and thinking and actions with empowering patterns, thinking and, and actions. Now, I'm not going to tell you that's easy because it's not, right? Part of it depends on your drive and motivation. Part of it depends on your self-talk. And, but a lot of it depends on those six pillars of courageous uh, action and courageous success. And that's why, uh, you know, I've really thought about this. It's why it's so important that we build a strong foundation with these six pillars. So you really want to think about how are you holding yourself back? So your action step then is to start tuning into what you're saying to yourself. What are you doing or not doing that's keeping you from achieving your goal? And then, you know, I really like the journaling down and looking at that. What opportunities are in your life right now that you could take action on to move forward towards your, your dreams and achieving them? You know, I tell people all the time, action is really the antidote to fear, and it's true. Because every action you take proves to yourself that you can do it, and it builds that courage and confidence. And it takes courage to come before confidence. Confidence is like one of those muscles that you start building. The more you take action, the stronger your confidence muscle becomes. So before you can start overthinking and coming up with reasons to not do something, I want you to take action right now. Not if you're driving, of course, but you know what I mean. I want you to take action as quickly as you can. So for example, if you want to get the word out about what you do, Reach out to a connection on LinkedIn and send them an update about what it is that you're doing. Don't tell yourself they don't want to hear from you. Don't beat yourself up that, oh, my God, it's been years since I, I talked to this person. Start now. It's never too late to catch up with somebody. It's never too late to say, hi, I was thinking of you. Just, you know, that's what we make connections for. It's okay. People understand. So you're not asking them for anything other than to fill you in on what's new with them. You're sharing an update. You're reconnecting. You can even tell them, hey, I made a commitment to myself that I would reestablish connections with or I would establish connections with those I'm truly connected with in social media. So you never know where it could lead to. So I know there are gurus out there who tell you that you need to take massive action, right? But I'm sorry, I think that's BS. It works for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for me, I can tell you that, and it probably doesn't work for you. So the secret is consistency. Small, 
reasonable actions that build your confidence so you can start extending yourself more and taking bigger actions. That is scientifically proven to work. Studies have shown it over and over again. And I'll include some links in the show notes to articles that that demonstrate this, right? So remember, the idea of small and big, it's relative. What others might consider a small step could be actually a really big deal for you. So don't let others' beliefs and judgments impact you and hold you back. I think the other action step that we can all take is to develop a conversation with the divine, a, a conversation habit with the divine. Ask powerful questions and make powerful requests. Like, what's the next best step for me to take to reach my goal of fill in the blank? Right? Ask. Ask for what you need. Yes, I know the divine knows what we need before we ask for it, but the nature of faith is, is it, it, it evolves from having the courage to ask for what we want. So open your heart and your eyes to all the signs that you're being sent along the way. Now, I mentioned before in a previous episode that Pastor Joel Osteen says that the reason we don't hear God's message and direction for us is that we listen with our ears, but God is actually talking to our hearts. So you're going to feel something, and it will be given voice in your head. You want to tune into that. I know that my faith is really the foundation of my courage. And if you want help on your journey of becoming or being a courageous entrepreneur, you'd like help to stay focused on completing your big projects, coming out of hiding and taking your business and you to the next level of success, consider joining the Courageous Entrepreneur Club. The club is made of small groups of no more than 10 people who are solo professionals and micro professionals. They run micro firms. They receive coaching, accountability, and support from me and from each other as they move forward to achieve the goals that they otherwise would lose focus on or that they couldn't build the courage to take action on. Group enrollment happens at specific times during the month, so if you want to learn more, go to winnieanderson.com slash join the club. Thanks for joining me for this special episode of the Courageous Entrepreneur Show, and remember, you deserve all the success you dream of.